everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. I'm Wendy. And we're back with you for another all new episode. It's a little strange for Wendy and I right now because we have not really recorded together for a month. Yeah, it's our first recording of 2023. We're excited. Yes, because we had pre-recorded a lot of our episodes before Christmas finished strong. Yep. And starting out semi-strong. We're getting there. We are. So I want to take a moment to give a little shout out in our listener spotlight section or what we're calling it at least this time. (laughs) Want to give a special shout out to Lena A from Finland. Yay, Lena, you're so nice. Yes, Lena, thank you so much for reaching out to us in your kind words. She also shared a case suggestion that we will be looking into. And if we can find enough information for an entire episode, you may be hearing that in the future. And Lena also offered to help us translate. So (laughs) We may take you up on that. We need the pronunciation help sometimes. Oh, yes. Also, the case suggestions are so nice. And also, just like, what are your favorite cases? What what do you guys like to listen to? I mean, Trish and I are going to cover what we like regardless and what we find information on. But it's nice to know what you guys are into listening to as well. Yes. So if you would like to contact us just to say hi or give us a case suggestion, you can contact us, of course, on our website, Criminal Discourse Podcast. There you will find all of our show notes and resources we use to bring you our episodes, plus our contact page. And you can also see some pictures of our fur babies. Mm-hmm. They're cute. They are devilish, but cute. <laughs> you can reach out to us also through the various social media platforms, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, at Criminal Pod. And Instagram, Criminal Dis Pod, D-I-S-P-O-D. All right. So I don't really have any updated crime news of cases we've covered. We're kind of still waiting for the Florida killer clown case. I think I did see that that is going to be covered on court TV when it starts. And of course, Sophia Tuscon de Plantier, they're still investigating. There's, I'm sure, more podcasts and docuseries coming out on that. Of course. Uh, Yeah, but here in the United States... Oh, my gosh. The big news for the last, what, one, two weeks has been the arrest of an alleged suspect in the murder of the four Idaho students. So we haven't covered that case. That might be one we do down the road once everything has wrapped up and there's been a trial. But yeah, that is sadly a Pennsylvania connection for us. Yeah, Brian Koberger, the suspect in this case, is from Albrightsville, Pennsylvania. And that's where he was found, tracked down to It's in the Pocono area. That is where a lot of criminals go to hide. (laughs) It's a beautiful mountain-esque area. Vacation there many a times. It is. We haven't covered any cases in there recently, but we do have some suggestions from there. There's some good cases we've looked at in that area as well. So, Mm -hmm. But yeah, that one is, we had a long chat before we hit record on this episode about just how much our understanding of this University of Idaho case has changed since it first came out Mm -hmm. to today with all of the new information now that a suspect has been apprehended. Just the entire nature of the case from they were asleep to now, no, they got DoorDash right before the murders happened. They were awake. They were struggling. There was someone who saw him leave the building. It's pretty wild. It is pretty wild. It is. So we'll have to see how that all plays out. So here in the US, that's the big pretty much in every news cycle. I think I've seen one since he's been arrested. Yeah, we'll talk about something else. But that's that's what we're researching in our personal non-criminal discourse time. Right. 
So we're going to get started with our new episode. And just to tell you how this episode came about. So like Wendy said, we do get some case suggestions. There are cases that, you know, we're interested that we might have heard about or seen by watching a forensic file or a dateline. Well, this came out because of the Black Panther Wakanda Forever movie. The strange connection is when that came out, I was like, oh, so I was Googling just some information on the movie. Maybe show. I think I was looking at Showtime and everything. So when you research criminal cases, true crime cases, I think as much as as we do, your Google browser kind of gets to know your interests. And one of the things that popped up in my feed, besides the movie Showtimes and all that, was the name Donald Nielsen, the Black Panther. I'm like, well, wait, who's that? What actor's that in the movie? (laughs) And it's not an actor in the Black Panther movies. It is the case we're going to cover today. Google knows Trish too well. I'm alarmed, but I also think it's cute and hilarious. <laughs> yes, that true crime cases pop up in my feed a lot. Yeah, like you don't want to see a movie. You want you want to learn about a crime. That's we know right. You. So our episode begins in the village of Highly in Shropshire, England. Now, I will apologize in advance to English listeners <laughs> if I mispronounce any of these towns. And it's located on the west bank of the River Severn. Originally a farming village, the discovery of coal turned the area really into a large coal mining industry that remained in operation until the late 1960s. So that's how this area got the name Black Country, because of all of the thousands of factories and foundries that were in the area. So this area still is known for manufacturing from anything from luxury vehicles to chocolate candy. And Shropshire is a landlocked area in the West Midlands of England that borders Wales and is considered, again, the birthplace of industry. Nice. So on the morning of January 14th, 1975, Dorothy Whittle took a bowl of cornflakes up to her 17-year-old daughter's bedroom to wake her up for the day. And this was her usual routine to do. That's really sweet, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking my kid gets breakfast. (laughs) So when she opened the door, she was surprised not to find Leslie in bed. So after calling out to her and getting no reply, she went to call Leslie's older brother, Ronald, who lived close by. I think he was in his 20s at the time. However, she was unable to do so as the phone line was dead. So Dorothy drove to Ronald's house and where he assured her that Leslie probably got up early and took the coach, which in the U.S. is a bus, to school early that day as she had been studying for her exams. So when Dorothy and Ronald returned to the Whittle residence, that theory was proven incorrect. In the lounge, a Turkish delight box, which is a chocolate box, was found and it contained four rolls of Dymo tape, which when rolled out was about six feet long. And it told the family that Leslie had been kidnapped. And the kidnapper was demanding a 50,000 pound ransom. The tape message also warned the family, no police, no tricks, or death. So just to tell our listeners a little bit about Dymo tape, I remember this. I I don't. I need a lesson. Oh, okay. So it's like a label. It's used in labeling, like files or stuff. So it's a handheld device, like kind of looks like a phaser, like a strange phaser gun with a dial on the top. Yes. So you turn the dial to a letter or number, and then you click the trigger, and then that pushes it on the tape. So whomever had kidnapped Leslie had typed out on this tape these ransom demands. That had to take... A long time. Yes. To do that. (laughs) Letter by letter. Letter by letter. Okay. So additional directions told the family to have someone go to the telephone kiosk in the Swan Shopping Center in Kidderminster. They were to arrive by 6 p.m. and wait until they were contacted. 
the call would come in sometime between 6 p.m. and 1 a.m. Now, when the phone rang, that person answering the call was to only give their name, and then they were told where they were to go next to drop off the ransom payment. So what would make Leslie, a quiet, friendly, studious girl, a target of a kidnapper? Well, she also happened to be an heiress to the Whittle Transportation Company. Her father, George, had died about five years previously and had left his entire fortune to Dorothy, Ronald, and Leslie, which at the time was anywhere from between, I read various numbers, like 250,000 pounds to 300,000 pounds. So for the 70s, that's a lot of money. There was a bit of a scandal with George's passing in 1970, and that was his decision to leave everything to Dorothy, whom he had been with for 30 years, and his kids, as George and Dorothy were never married. She was the mistress, as he was still married to his first wife, Selena. So Selena had contested the will after George died and had won a significant settlement. Now, all of this had hit the media, which had covered the sword affair in detail. So they weren't together. I don't think he was cheating on Selena per se. He just, she wouldn't divorce him. She she wanted that, that payout. I guess she did. <laughs> she didn't divorce him. So Dorothy and Ronald, when they read the ransom notice, didn't hesitate to contact the police. With Detective Chief Superintendent Bob Booth of the West Mercia Police leading the investigation. Detective Booth had an impressive history of solving all 70 cases he had investigated up to this point. I think he was actually looking at a promotion before this case landed in his lap. It was decided that Ronald would take the ransom to the telephone kiosk with undercover officers stationed nearby. Inspector Eddie Berry was stationed about 50 yards from the telephone bank to record any calls that came into the kiosk. Now, what happened next would be the first of many missteps by the authorities. In this one documentary I watched or a show called Killers, Detective Booth is interviewed years later, and he would say this was first blunder that came is when he didn't request a news blackout. The investigators had worked hard to keep Leslie's kidnapping quiet, and since things were moving so quickly, they didn't think the press would become aware of the story until after Leslie's safe return. However, that assumption would turn out to be a mistake. News broke of the heiress's kidnapping that afternoon, and the press descended onto Hiley, and they were relentless. An employee of the Whittle Transportation Company had leaked what had happened to the press, so that's how they got wind of it. And it got so bad that when Ronald went to the telephone kiosk, the press followed and kept trying to take pictures and interview him. They didn't seem to care that a young woman's life was on the line. I'm all for freedom of the press. I know that's a very big deal here in America. But yeah, you can't interfere with someone trying to get their daughter back. So the officer in charge at the Swan Shopping Center decided to call off the vigil as he felt the kidnapper would not call due to all the media coverage. He just felt like, okay, he's going to know about this. He's not going to call. Sure. And I think he sent Ronald home. However, it didn't seem like he told everyone that he was calling it off as Detective Barry was still monitoring the phone lines. And it was around midnight that he had heard one of the phones ringing. No one was there to pick up the call. To say Detective Booth was livid when he was informed that Ronald had been sent home would have probably been an understatement, but he took it personally that he had let the family down. So he talks about that in one of the shows, and it's linked in the show notes that, you know, he put this person in charge of the scene, and ultimately it was his responsibility. So it was going on 24 hours since Leslie was taken from her home when authorities were notified by Whittle employee Len Rutt that he had answered a call from Leslie. Well, at first, he thought it was her. But to his disappointment, it was only a recording. The recording was as follows. Mom, you need to go to Kids Grove Post Office telephone box. The instructions are inside. 
I'm okay, but there are to be no police and no tricks, okay? It was decided once again that Ronald would be the courier. Kids Grove was about 75 miles from Hiley, so he had a distance to go. But before he could leave, the Scotland Yard surveillance team wanted to fit Ronald with a transmitter. And this was just for tracking purposes. It wasn't a recording device. And this would just again record his movements. Detective Booth contacted the local authorities in Kids Grove, informing them of the highly sensitive ransom drop being made in their area. Detective Booth didn't want any interference from the Staffordshire police, asking them, as he would say in this one show I watched, just to stay in bed. Like, just <laughs> don't go anywhere near Kids Grove. So Ronald finally drove off, but due to all the time it took for the transmitter fitting and to make arrangements and notification of local authorities, he was about an hour late taking off. And it also didn't help that when he arrived at the phone booth, he couldn't find the instructions taped to the backboard. That took him about another half hour. So once he retrieved them, he was told to drive a mile away to a road running through Bath Pole Park. So the instructions were, go to the top of the lane and turn into no energy. Go to the wall and flashlight box for torchlight. Run to torch. Further instructions on torch. I don't know. I'd be kind of like, what? <laughs> I wouldn't enjoy this. <laughs> I'd be so confused and stressed. I would be very confused and stressed. So again, he was kind of told to go to the specific location to wait in the car, flash his lights, then he'd see flashing lights is the best way I can understand the instructions and then run towards the flashing light, flashlight or torch would have more instructions on it. Oh my gosh. So Ronald did this. However, he drove past the area where he was supposed to drive and he did what he was supposed to do, flash the lights. He got out of his car. He said, I'm here. I have the ransom. But unfortunately, he heard nothing or saw nothing. So once an hour had passed with no indication that the kidnapper was coming, Ronald was sent home again. So the next day, Detective Booth wanted to do a full scale search of Bathpole Park. But he was overruled by Scotland Yard, who was concerned that if the kidnapper were watching, it would tip him off that the police were involved. And that would put Leslie's life in more danger, which makes sense, right? So a compromise was reached with Scotland Yard, offering to send in some undercover officers to do a discreet search of the area. So Detective Booth agreed. And over the two-day search, he was informed that nothing of significance was found. So Detective Booth asked the family if they would be willing to make a direct appeal to the kidnapper as they had not heard from him in a few days. Ronald gave a TV interview telling the kidnapper that he waits by the phone day and night for his call. He also had a message for those pretending to be the kidnapper that had already reached out, and that was to knock it off. Hoping that the kidnapper would respond led to nothing but disappointment. So he has these failed ransom attempts. He has these false kidnapper calls coming in. He's got to be in quite a state right now. Oh, I think both him, him and his mother were. Oh, geez. I'm stressed just listening to it. This is awful. <laughs> what they're putting him through. It gets worse, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, okay. Okay. So nine days after Leslie's kidnapping, the investigation seemed to stall until Detective Booth received a phone call from the West Midland Police asking him to examine an abandoned vehicle with the license plate of TTV454H left in Dudley on the second night of Leslie's kidnapping. This was the night Ronald had been waiting around, I think, for the kidnapper to call at the Swan Shopping Center. Mm-hmm. When I was researching it, some things said it was the same night of that. Some said it was the next night that was in between the Swan Shopping Center and the Bath Pole Park drop off. So it's kind of it's within that 48 hour period. 
So on January 15, 1975, in Dudley, a gunman had opened fire on security guard Gerald Smith outside the Freightliner Railway Depot. Gerald Smith was shot six times, and he would survive his injuries for up to a year. He did pass away after a year, and he would give the police the description of his shooter after he confronted him for trespassing, telling him he looked like a tramp. So this confrontation took place about 300 yards away from where the abandoned vehicle was found. And shockingly, this car was not checked for eight days. They were right there and they just they didn't notice it. They, they just, I think people called in that this vehicle had been there for, you know, after a couple of days, hey, this vehicle hasn't moved and no one bothered to check it. And nobody related what Gerald Smith was saying, like, oh, it's a tramp, thinking it's like a in America, a hobo a or homeless, you know, vagrant, vagrant yeah. that that would be somebody who would be sophisticated enough to pull off a kidnapping. So they weren't really connecting the two, which possibly could have been another blunder. So once the vehicle was checked, its contents would send Leslie's kidnapping in a whole new direction. On the front seat were a tape recorder and a cassette tape, some rope, a flashlight, torch, and a pair of ladies' slippers. Now, once the tape was played, it confirmed to investigators that this was the vehicle that had transported Leslie away from her home, that it had been sitting there. So you could look in the window and just see the stuff on the front seat, essentially. Yes. Oh, my. So the recording was as follows. Mom, go to the M6 North to Junction 10 and on to the A454 towards Wassel. Instructions are taped under the shelf of the telephone box. There's no need to worry, Mom. I'm okay. Um, I got a bit wet, but I'm quite dry now. I'm being treated very well. Okay. So other items were found in the car were four envelopes that gave ransom instructions to phone boxes all over the Midlands. So Detective Booth decided to follow that trail that Ronald may have had to follow that first night. The trail led Detective Booth to two telephone kiosks in Dudley, just yards away from the, where the kidnapper's car had been abandoned. From there, the instructions led Detective Booth to drive across the bridge to the Freightliner Railway Depot, where he was to cross the road onto the car park to Gate 8 of the Dudley Zoo. So there were all these various instructions, again, taped around these various telephone boxes. So complicated. This was the same area, though, where Gerald Smith had confronted the trespasser and had gotten shot. So in Detective Booth's mind, he was convinced that the man who kidnapped Leslie had also shot the security guard, not this tramp vagrant. Ballistics were run on the bullets retrieved from Smith's shooting, and the results would once again throw this case into a new direction. So the bullets that had been embedded in Gerald Smith matched bullets to three sub-postmaster murders committed in 1974 and all attributed to the elusive Black Panther. On February 15, 1974, an intruder awoke the 18-year-old son of sub-postmaster Donald Skepper of Harrogate in North Yorkshire. He pointed a gun at the young man and directed him to enter his parents' bedroom to get the keys to the safe. Now, Donald had awoken and told his son, let's get him. But before he could even get out of bed, the gunman shot him and fled. Donald Skipper would die in his wife's arms. Mm. Sub-postmasters and mistresses usually operated the post office alongside their other business and usually resided on the premise. So the authorities were notified and put up roadblocks around town, but they would be unsuccessful in catching this perpetrator. What the police didn't know then is that the burglar who then the media would later name the Black Panther. Due to the description by one of the victim's wives, because he was so quiet and quick like a panther, is that he hadn't used a car that night at all. 
Upon fleeing the Skepper residence, he followed the stream to the south end of town and got on a train. So on September 6, 1974, just seven months later, around 4 a.m., Derek Austin, sub-postmaster of Baxendale Telegraph Office, was shot with a 22 caliber firearm. He would also die after confronting the burglar. Then two months later, on November 11, 1974, at the Langley Telegraph sub-office, sub-postmistress Margaret Graylin was found severely beaten, suffering from several skull fractures. Her husband, Sidney Graylin, had been shot to death. Sydney had gone to lock the back door of the store when Margaret heard a loud bang. When she went to investigate, she was beaten in the head and left for dead. The burglar left with about a thousand pounds. Once again, a twenty-two caliber firearm had been used. Now, police attributed all three of these murders to the Black Panther. So in addition to these three murders, the Black Panther had been linked to dozens of unsolved home invasions, about 400, in fact. 400? Yes, that's what I read, up to 400. (laughs) Wow. His M.O. was to force open windows and cut telephone wires, all while wearing his signature look of a black balaclava, dark clothing, and carrying at least two firearms. So now investigators knew who was responsible for Leslie's kidnapping. They just didn't know who he was. There was a description of the Black Panther that the police in the area carried with them. So this was basic descriptions from people that had had run-ins with him and survived. He was described as being between 5'5", 5'7", athletic build, possibly 35 or older, with a possible shoe size of 7. His hair is described as dark with no sideburns, with hair short in the back and perhaps curly on the ends. His eyes were described as wild or staring. He had a fresh complexion and a semi-lantern jaw. How police came by this description is the confrontation with the sub-postmaster in 72, who had confronted the burglar and Margaret Graylin after she had recovered from her injuries. So in February 1972, the Panther gained entry into a sub-post office located in the residence of Leslie Richardson. Leslie had been woken in his bed by a hooded man. He immediately jumped into action, physically confronting the burglar, and as the two men fought, his wife called the police. Two gunshots would go off, putting holes in the ceiling, but in the melee, Leslie would rip off the intruder's hood. The burglar would leave empty-handed. Well, and it sounds like after he confronted the Richardsons, he was like, I'm going to change how I do things so that this doesn't happen again. That's what they say, like in a lot of the documentaries I watched on him, that because of that almost getting caught, that he was going to make sure he never left witnesses alive again. Mm. So six weeks after Leslie Whittle had been taken from her bedroom in the middle of the night, the police were no closer to finding her or her kidnapper. Both Detective Booth and Ronald Whittle went on TV, and this was in in February, to plead for the kidnapper to get in touch. Now, in a bit of a ruse to not let on that Ronald had been working with the police from the beginning, Detective Booth played ignorant when the reporter asked him about the second failed ransom drop at Bathpool Park. Detective Booth wanted a reason to do a more thorough search of the park and felt that if he pretended to just hear about the location, the kidnapper wouldn't be surprised by a search taking place there. So this new search led to the discovery of evidence that seemingly had been overlooked when Scotland Yard had conducted their discreet search about seven weeks earlier. So once this TV interview had hit the airways, people came forward with things they had found in the park. One was a headmaster who had contacted the police that a pupil of his had brought in a piece of dymo tape that they had found on the ground outside of a capped drain shaft. Typed out was drop the suitcase in the hole. There it is. So a spanner or wrench 
as we call it in the U.S., was found. So this device could be used to unlock metal bars covering the draining holes. So after these discoveries seemed to point to more going on in Bath Pool Park than they originally thought... So it was after the discovery of these various items that this seemed to be the point that the various teams working on this case, Detective Booth and his team, the Scotland Yard, the Stratfordshire Police Department, this really is when their relationship began to fracture. So it had been 51 days since Leslie Whittle was kidnapped and police again were no closer to finding her. Philip Mastery, a scene of the crime officer, similar, I think, to the U.S. as a crime scene investigator or CSI, was called in to follow up the various clues that had been found in the park. And his search focused on the underground shafts that ran through the park. He started with the shaft that the message about dropping the suitcase into was found outside of. Now, in one shaft, he found a reporter's notebook, a tape recorder, and some pencils. That's not supposed to be there. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) So in searching another ventilation shaft, and I think this might have been the third shaft he searched. So they have like these capped ventilation shafts that once you get down, like once you remove the bars, you can climb down a ladder and there's usually a platform and then another ladder, a platform till it goes to the bottom where the tunnels all run through the park. So this was about the third shaft that he had descended. And he was about 60 feet down that he came to a platform that held a piece of foam and a sleeping bag. He could see a metal wire secured to the ladder, and when he looked below the platform, he discovered the naked body of Leslie Whittle hanging from a wire noose around her neck. Her feet dangled just seven inches off the bottom of the shaft floor. Evidence would determine that Leslie had most likely died the night of the failed ransom drop in Bathpole Park, about seven weeks earlier. She is believed to have died of a heart attack as her neck had not been broken and there were no signs of strangulation. So they said the shock from the fall had caused her heart to stop beating. Oh my gosh. So authorities wanted to know why Leslie's kidnapper didn't appear to collect the ransom that night and it killed her instead. One possible explanation was that the kidnapper confused Ronald's vehicle with someone else's that night. Peter Shorto and his girlfriend had gone to Bathpole Park sometime around 2.45 a.m., And they were there for about 15 minutes when they saw a flashing light from a torch or a flashlight about 150 yards away from their car. The light was moving side to side, so they didn't think it was coming from headlights. And it was soon after that that Short saw a panda car. Now, I got to stop here a moment. When I heard panda car, as an American citizen, this is terrible. I was like, what is a panda car? Well, it's a police car. It's a black and white, which I love. And now it's what I'm going to refer to police cars as. They saw a panda car enter the park and drive to the right of his car, parking about 100 yards away with an officer exiting his vehicle to smoke a cigarette. Stop. A police officer was there? Well, Detective Booth believes that mistaking Short's vehicle for Ronald's and the police presence spooked the kidnapper, who then panicked, ran back to the shaft that Leslie was being held in, and in his anger, pushed her off the platform, killing her. Oh my gosh. Now, there are other law enforcement officials who disagree with Detective Booth's theory, namely Harold Wright. He is head of Straffordshire's Criminal Investigation Division. He adamantly denies that there were any police in the area that night. However, in one documentary, Detective Booth had gotten a copy of all the cars that were recorded going into and out of Bathpole Park that night before Ronald had even arrived in a panda car is reported to have entered. I believe Detective Booth over everybody at this point. I just like him. (laughs) You probably like him in the documentaries, too. So after the discovery of Leslie's body, Detective Booth was taken off the case. (gasps) 
No, not my booth. (laughs) Just wait. (laughs) And it was handed over to Commander John Morrison, head of the Scotland Yard's murder squad. Detective Booth would be further chastised for what his superiors felt was unprofessionalism by being demoted back to a patrol officer. Because he figured it out and they didn't? Well, I think not at the time as this was unfolding because he really voiced his disagreement with how things were handled. He wanted that park search the next day. He was denied that. Watch the documentaries and the shows on this case. Let me hear from you listeners. I just felt that it was there were too many chefs in the kitchen. There were a lot of people working on this case. I think at one point they had over 200 plus officers trying to to find her. And it just, I think when you're dealing with different departments, you have the different egos, the different jurisdictional posturing that goes on. And Detective Booth wasn't about that. It seems like he just was like, hey, we need to do a thorough search. No, no, we can't. And they just really stalled out. And he worked very closely with the family. And he, you see that in the documentaries that he personally, he was devastated as to the outcome. He really just cared about solving the case and saving And bringing girl. Leslie home. Yes. And then he got demoted. Oh, yes. Mm. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so after headlines broke of Leslie's murder, the public started to, again, notify authorities of the items that had been found in Pathpole Park over that 51-day period. Oh my gosh, there's more. And some could say there was, in one, I think they phrased it as, it was an embarrassment of riches. Oh my gosh. There was a flashlight found or a torch. There was more Dymo tape, binoculars. So even though the police had collected these various items and even found fingerprints, no match was made and they were no closer to finding out who the Black Panther was. So on December 11th, 1975, so we're almost talking a year later, not quite a year, because she was kidnapped in January. So two patrol officers in the town of Mansfield, Nottinghamshire, noticed a man acting out of place. So they pulled up beside him and asked him his name and address, which he refused to give. Suddenly, the man showed a sawed-off shotgun and pointed it into the window with the two officers. The man then said, don't move, any tricks, you're dead. He then directed the officer in the passenger seat to get into the back seat, and then he got in beside the driver. He then put the gun into the side of the driver and directed him to drive out of town. So it was while driving through town that the officer behind the wheel suddenly jerked it back and forth while the officer in the back grabbed for the shotgun with two shots going off into the roof. The panda car would come to rest outside of a fish and chip shop. So it comes to rest and these customers are inside the fish and chip shop and they're all minors. So they're really strong men. And one of the customers comes out, Roy Morris, asking if the officers need help as they're, you know, struggling with this guy. And they're like, yeah. So, you know, these minors just, you know, cuff them up, hold his hands and cuff them up. So once in custody, the man would remain silent for two days, refusing to answer any questions. And after two days, for whatever reason, he decided to talk, telling the officers his name was Donald Nielsen. And we've we've heard that before at the don't move any tricks and you're dead. We've heard that before, right? Oh, it's in the Dymo tape. Yeah. So Donald Nielsen was actually born Donald Nappy on August 1st, 1936 in Bradford. His father, Gilbert, was a textile worker and his mother, Phyllis, a housewife. Phyllis would pass away when Donald was young and with his grandmother taking over his care. Now, Donald was a victim of bullying in his younger years due to kids making fun of his last name, Nappy, which means diaper. I just giggled, yeah. (laughs) So at the age of 15, he would drop out of school. 
But at the age of 18, Donald's life seemed to take a turn for the better as he was drafted into national service into the army, where he seemed to thrive. He rose to the rank of Lance Corporal. He would even get married to Irene Tate when he turned 18, who unfortunately convinced him to leave the army and return home to start a family. And their only child, Catherine, was born in or around 1960. So Donald went into the construction trade and for a time was successful and the young family prospered. And before Catherine started school, Donald changed the family name to Nielsen, not wanting his daughter to go through what he did. So Nielsen, though, missed his army days and the family activities would often include going out into the country and playing military games like he had bought this old Jeep. Yeah, they show some video of it in some of the documentaries I watch. Slightly strange. Yes. Military games with your children. Yes. <laughs> so the family's financial security took a turn for the worse by the 1970s after Nielsen's various business ventures seemed to fail. This is when Nielsen decided to put his military training into use and turned to home invasion robberies. Always a backup, I guess. Terrible backup. So <laughs> it was noted that Nielsen is accredited with approximately, again, 400 home burglaries prior to turning to robbing close to 18 sub post offices. He was first known as the brace and bit robber due to his technique of using a brace and then a bit to drill into the window frame and then use a coat hanger or a screwdriver to open the catch to gain entry into the dwelling he was robbing. It was in 1972 that Nielsen had read about the scandal over George Whittle's estate in the Daily Express and began to plant what he thought would be his biggest score. For months leading up to the night in January 1975, he had surveyed and trained to kidnap one member of the Whittle family. His kidnap kit included night vision goggles, binoculars, and a wire rope. Nielsen had stolen a Morris 1300 vehicle and outfitted it with a fake license plate. This is the car he would use to scout out Leslie's home in Highly, Shropshire and would be found eight days after Leslie's kidnapping outside the Dudley Zoo, where Gerald Smith had been shot next to the Freightline Depot. The following is Nielsen's version of events the night he took Leslie. So he entered the Whittle home in the early morning hours of January 14th. Nielsen woke Leslie up by pointing a sawed-off Remington shotgun at her, ordering her to get dressed. She put on a blue dressing gown and some slippers. Nielsen then covered her mouth and eyes and bound her hands. On the way out of the house, he left the ransom note and then fled in the stolen vehicle. Nielsen then drove Leslie to Bathpool Park, where he made her descend a metal ladder into the ventilation shaft some 60 to 90 feet below to a two-foot by five-foot metal platform. Once settled, he had her disrobe, and he placed a metal noose around her neck, tethered to a metal pipe with a five-foot metal wire in between. It was in the shaft that Nielsen made Leslie record the messages to her mother and brother regarding the various ransom drops. Now, Nielsen has always denied that he had killed Leslie Whittle in a rage. He claims that when he returned to the shaft after the second failed ransom drop, that as she was moving over to make room for him, she accidentally slipped off the platform. What do you think? No. <laughs> No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so on January 14, 1976, the elusive Black Panther Donald Nielsen stood trial in Oxford Crown Court for the kidnapping murder of Leslie Whittle. He would be found guilty by a jury of his peers. He next stood trial on July 6, 1976 for the murders of Donald Skepper, Derek Austin, and Sidney Grayland, and the attempted murder of Margaret Grayland. I think Gerald Smith was in there, too. And he would only be found guilty of the three murders and not guilty of any of the attempted murders. What? Don't ask me. I don't know. I, <laughs> I was shocked by that, too. And he was sentenced to life in prison. 
Now, Nielsen also received a whole life tariff distinction, which means that instead of being eligible for parole after 30 years, he could never be released from prison except under extremely compassionate circumstances. And this is according to the UK government website, and I have that link below. So in the US, we get life without parole. This is basically what that is. Donald Nielsen would die on December 18th, 2011 at the age of 75 from a motor neuron disease similar to ALS. Well, that's a horrible way to die. Well, I don't feel bad for him. He was a horrible man. Okay, so even if he didn't push her, he had a noose around her. Like, he was planning to kill her. Well, you know, one thing I could never find. So again, English listeners, if you know something more to this story, I didn't see anything is, did he wear the balakava the whole time he was with her? You know, because if he had worn the balaclava the whole time to hide, you know, what he looked like, yeah. then the likelihood maybe that he was going to let her go would still be there, mm-hmm. right? That he's trying to hide his identity from her. If he didn't, well, mm-hmm. then most likely she was not going to survive. Yeah. But I couldn't find anything on that. And the only person that would know that would be Leslie. I almost think like you could restrain her and keep her somewhere without putting her down in that shaft, without putting that noose around her neck. Those all seem to me indications that he was planning on killing her that night regardless. And like he did the recordings. And he took her clothes. Yeah. And he did the recordings as well instead of just having her talk to like it seemed to me like he was planning to kill her no matter what. Possibly. I mean, that's that's the theory I think the police go with that that's probably most likely outcome. Um, You're a scumbag regardless. I really don't care. And the one thing (laughs) is, even though she was found 51 days later, I think her body, I mean, it was in stages of decomposition, but for the most part, I think was fairly well preserved because she was in a damp, cold, it was winter in the environment that worked, you know, at least in their favor to kind of figure things out. They also don't think he fed her for the two days because she had lost a significant amount of weight. Hmm. I don't think she was very big to begin with. Right. Um, But he denies that also. He says, no, I fed her fish and chips and soup and, uh, you know. So he, to his dying day, never admitted that he killed her. He always claimed that it was an accident, that she had fallen off the platform. But you could have cut the wire. In his case, he said, well, I made it five feet. It would. The problem was, I think when she fell, part of it got hooked on a ladder. So it didn't give her enough slack. Doesn't matter. Dude, you caused it. Right. And if you see something, say something. If you see an abandoned car, at least look into it. People did. People turned it, notified the police that there was an abandoned vehicle. The police. No, nobody looked at it. <laughs> the police. So when Detective Booth says there were many blunders, and this case is known for that, that there were just so many blunders done. And keep in mind, the police, for the most part, did not find him through an investigative means. They were still wondering who this Black Panther was. They didn't hone in on Donald Nielsen. It was the two officers who were just out patrolling in Mansfield that saw him and was like, oh, that guy looks kind of suspicious. Let's, you know, do our due diligence and, and pull over. And it's from that incident that he was caught. And then teenagers at a food stand who had to help them. Well, minors, 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 grown men who were very strong grown men that were like, oh, what's going on here? Can we help? Yeah. Had he chosen never to go back to a life of crime, right? Had he chosen not 
to like after this happened to just walk away. They most likely may have never have caught him. That's that's astounding to me because the only thing I can think of in my mind where you have that many home invasions that you actually get away with. The only thing I can think is the Golden State Killer East Area Rapist. Like he had a lot, but he was also a police officer. So I in my mind, I can think in my head like, okay, he could get away with that because he was on patrol. He knew what to do. He was on the inside. How did this guy get away with 400 plus He used his military training. He dressed in black clothing. He wore gloves. He's, you know, he, I think, cased the places that he was going to rob. And this was the 70s. People didn't have really home security systems. (laughs) That Okay, that's true. It's still astounding to me that many that no one no one in his life would be like, hey, isn't it weird that he's, you know, that like something would have they come up. say that in some articles I read that he was really a tyrant in the home to his wife and daughter. Mm-hmm. I think there was some domestic violence that went on when they searched his residence. He had like for lack of a better term, a man cave in the attic space. And once they got into there, that's where they found all of his planning stuff, all of his guns, his clothing. He even had a little Black Panther model. Stop it. Right? He liked the, and he had all these newspaper clippings of the, of the Black Panther. I think he enjoyed that. His daughter came out with, there's an article I do have in the show notes where she's interviewed. I think she might have come out with a book on growing up, you know, with him. And she talks about how he changed as the robberies commenced and then he turned to murder, how he became more abusive, more, I mean, they were not allowed to go to that attic space. His wife actually ended up doing some time because she had cashed some of the, I want to say like money orders kind of things from the post office robbings. So they got her for that. So she maybe kind of knew. I don't know if she knew. I I mean, she had to know something. How could you not know? (laughs) You're you're an abused woman and you're told what to do. Right. So I think she knew something shady. I don't think she necessarily maybe knew how shady and murderous he was. She wasn't going to confront him. I can't blame her. No. So yeah, that is the story of the Black Panther. Not Black Panther Wakanda forever. (laughs) Not not the one who saves people. Right. Is a Marvel superhero. Thank you, everyone, who took the time to listen. We greatly appreciate it. If you've liked this episode, you know, let us know. Drop us a line like we said before. Introduce yourself. Tell us where you're from. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, as Wendy said, you see something, say something. If you could have that missing piece of the puzzle, it takes to solve a crime. And I'll just say this. Hats off to those two patrol officers in their panda car doing their job. Because really, they're the ones that cracked this case. They could have ignored them. They could have just kind of followed him and never confronted him, but they did. And they didn't act fearful either. They took no. They took out a guy with a sawed-off shotgun in their face. Correct. And my understanding is patrol officers are bobbies. I think that's what they're called Aww. in England. Bobbies in panda cars. I know. That's so <laughs> they didn't carry weapons. Oh. They didn't have guns. They were like, we're ju- they didn't even communicate. We're doing this. Like They the- just did their job. So hats off to those guys. Good they job. really are the ones that cracked this case. Mm-hmm. And we have to shout out to Detective Booth for just standing his ground and doing the right things. He tried to. He I- tried to. And he really, you do see in those documentaries, at least from my perspective, that he, he really took it on to heart that this was a failure. I mean, yes, it ended his career. I think he ended up retiring then. He stayed a patrol officer, I think, for a while, but then he retired in 1980. You feel for him. It ruined his career because he he was so outspoken as to the mistakes that were made. And he owns them. He says there were blunders. There were major blunders. 
But he he did the right thing. And he put that he put what he felt was the right thing before his future job prospects, which I think is important. And I admire. All right, everyone. Thanks again for listening. Like I said, check out the show notes. I have a timeline written up that Wendy's thankfully going to put into some order because this case was a little confusing trying to track, especially around the different ransom drops and when things took place and when they didn't. So make sure you check that out. That will be on the website when this episode airs. And we hope, uh, like I said, You'll be back with us uh, next time. Listen, 2023, we have all of these cases popping off, things being solved, Jane and John Doe's being identified. Who knows what kind of good juicy cases you are going to get to listen to this year. So keep tuning in. Rate us, reviews, five stars. Greatly appreciate We don't read them often, but <laughs> it's, it's not for our egos. It's for, you know, to get attention to the show, help us keep going and share it with a friend. If you like it, share it with a friend, let them know, keep the community growing. Yeah, we're out on all the major platforms. All right. Till next time, guys. Bye. Bye.